I'm going to be ambitious today and try to look at all of 1 Corinthians 15, but I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read a good chunk of it to begin with, and then we'll skip down towards the end. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15, let's hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now let's skip down to... Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. I became aware of an article uh, recently written by a, a, a British theologian, Simon Gathercall. It's in The Guardian, a British newspaper, and he was making the case for uh, the historical Jesus, that Jesus did actually exist, and he was giving a synopsis of, of the uh, historical evidence of the existence of Jesus, because there are people today who speak of Jesus as a mere hypothesis, as, as just an idea, rather than a historical figure. About ten years ago, the Jesus Project was uh, a project by liberal theologians and one of its main questions was to, to answer was whether or not Jesus actually existed. And now some authors, according to Professor Gathercall, have claimed that Jesus of Nazareth was doubly non-existent. Not only did Jesus never exist, Nazareth never existed. Now the scholarship behind all that is, is pretty sketchy, but we find today that, that there are many people, 40% in England, according to the article, that do not believe that Jesus actually existed, that he was a historical figure. Well, that's one question that people need to answer. Uh, and there, there is abundant historical references that leave us with little doubt that Jesus lived and died. But a more interesting and profound question is not did Jesus live and die, but did Jesus die and live? That's what we celebrate today. If you look at statistics that, they, that come out through various channels, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of professing Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's shocking. Especially as you read these words from the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, 20% of professing Christians, 20% more believe in reincarnation than believe in resurrection. Reincarnation is a Hindu idea. It's not a Christian idea. So is the resurrection necessary? Is it, is it, is it necessary to believe the resurrection? Is it imperative to believe the resurrection? If we listen to the Apostle Paul... Yes, because he says, verse 14, Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul thought it was very important to believe in the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is only vanity, futility, and a pitiable situation for Christians. Is the resurrection important? Yes, we believe it is. And I want to give you three reasons why the resurrection is important. First, the resurrection validates the person of Christ for the believer. Secondly, the resurrection validates the work of of Christ for the believer. And then finally, I want to make a little application. The resurrection validates work for Christ for the believer. Well, first, the resurrection validates the person of Christ for the believer. You see here at the beginning of chapter 15 that Christianity 
rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection as a space-time occurrence in history. The gospel that we speak of is not a list of rules for you to follow. It is good news. It is news. It is something that has happened in the past, 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived. He died. He was buried. And he rose from the grave. It happened in history. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you look at the very first couple of verses... I want to remind you of the gospel, which means good news that I preach to you. Verse 3, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he gives evidence. Peter saw him. That's who Cephas is. Peter, James, the disciples, 500 people, many are still alive. If you don't believe me, you can go ask them. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. There are people who, uh, who are alive today who saw him, Paul's saying. And if you don't believe me, you can go ask them. There was nothing written. No one stood up to that challenge. We don't have any record that anyone proved them wrong or went out and found those 500-plus witnesses and negated their stories. No, the word spread throughout the world, and Christianity now is one of the great religions of the world. If Christ didn't raise, wasn't raised, or if he didn't even exist, how could that be true? How could Christianity take such a hold in the world? So Paul's pointing to the historical nature of it. Well, the resurrection validates what Scripture says about Jesus Christ. Because, of course, we see he says there in the Old Testament, the Scriptures that he refers to, that, that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It was promised by the prophets in the Old Testament. They were looking forward to the Messiah who would come. And then you come to the New Testament. The Gospels record for us what Jesus said, and there are numerous examples throughout the Gospel of Jesus predicting that he would rise from the dead. Matthew 12, for example. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's just one of, of many throughout the Gospels where Jesus himself said he would rise from the dead. All four Gospels highlight it. They all focus on the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances of Christ. And then when you come to the book of Acts, the history of the early church, the first century church, all the early sermons were based on the resurrection of Christ. They were preaching the, the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys, he was always focusing on the resurrection. You remember when he went to Athens and he preached to the skeptics there and he concluded the, the speech that he gave them by saying, there's going to be a man come to judge the world and God has proven it by raising him from the dead. And some people left and they scoffed and some people came back the next day to hear more of what he said. So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he was a liar and he made promises that did not come true. And it also would make uh, his apostles liars as well. If there is no resurrection, then the Bible is not true and our faith is worthless since we'd be putting our faith in someone who was a liar who was false and in people who gave false testimonies about him. 
Well, not only does the resurrection confirm what Jesus said and what his disciples said about him, uh, about his resurrection, about him rising from the dead, it also points us to who Jesus was. It confirms who Jesus was. Two things. First, that are recorded here in Corinthians, I could give you a whole more, a long list of things that are confirmed. But we're going to look at these two that are mentioned here in chapter 15. The resurrection, first of all, validates that Jesus is the conquering Son of God. We see that in verses 24 and following, where it talks about the end of time after Christ returns. He's going to deliver the kingdom to God. He has destroyed every rule and every authority and power. He is the supreme authority in the universe. He has destroyed every enemy, including death. Everything is under his feet. And he's referred to as the Son who is going to give the kingdom to the Father. He is the, he is the Son of God. His divinity, this, this resurrection from the dead, shows that he was indeed the divine Son of God. We're studying Romans regularly in uh, our passage. And back in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says that Christ, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He is the Son of God. And it's imperative that Christians believe that Jesus was divine. If he's not divine, then what he, he did in his life, his death and resurrection, would be of, of no consequence. In his life, he was perfect because he is divine. Son of God, sinless. He could not be sinless if he weren't divine. In his death, if he wasn't the Son of God suffering for us, then that death would be just another human being dying at the hands of the Romans, being executed. And of course, if he didn't rise again, he would be just like any other person who was put to death, rotting in the grave. So the resurrection validates what Jesus said about himself, the claims that he made about himself being the Son of God. Also, the resurrection demonstrates Jesus' victory over death and vindicated him as righteous. This final verses we read, verse 54, talks about the imperishable being replaced by the perishable. Uh, well, when the perishable being replaced by the imperishable. The mortal putting on immortality. It's talking about us uh, rising from the grave, having glorified bodies, which we'll talk about in a moment, and death being destroyed. God raised Christ from the dead. And when he did so, he set his seal on the work Christ did in his life and his death. The bodily resurrection of Jesus was a demonstration that the Father approved of his work. The Son was sent to, to die for sin. And Christ came and he obeyed in thought, word, and deed the Heavenly Father all the way to the end. The greatest act of obedience, the crowning act of obedience, was when he died on the cross. He laid his life down. He said, no one takes it from me, I lay it down. He did it for us in obedience to the Father. He came to do the Father's will. From his birth all the way through to his very last breath, he obeyed the Father. And that, that death was part of his obedience. Why do people die? Why do human beings die at all? That's not the way God created the world. Adam and Eve could have gone on living forever if they had not eaten the forbidden fruit and fallen into sin. Sin is what brings death. Christ could not be held by death 
because he was sinless. Death had no claim on him. He was perfect in every way, and when death tried to lay its claim on him, it could not keep him. Yes, he died in obedience to, to uh, the, the will of the Father, to lay down his life for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, and he, he did that. And because he did that, he could rise again because he was perfect in sin and death had no hold on him. So, Jesus is victorious over death and it shows that he was indeed the righteous one. Now that's just scratching the surface of what the resurrection confirms about the person and work of Jesus. And now let's turn our attention to the work of Christ for the believer. The resurrection validates the work of Christ for the believer. Federal theology is a category of, of theology, and it, it just means, uh, federal means head. It comes from the Greek word for head, or representative. We have a federal government, right? We, have, we, we vote for people to represent us in the Senate, in the House of Representatives. Now, sometimes these people that we elect do not represent us very well, and we become very unhappy with them. Well, all of humanity, federal theology says, is represented by Adam, was represented by Adam. Adam was our federal head. So he represented us, and he did a lousy job because he ate that forbidden fruit. He rebelled against God. He listened to Satan rather than listen to the Lord. And as our representative, we all sinned with him and in him and fell with him, the confession says. So Adam is, is everyone's representative, and we need, a, we need a new representative. You need a new representative, and that's what Christ came to do. He talks about it here in this passage you know, it talks about Adam, the first Adam coming, and then Christ coming, uh, the second Adam. You read that in Romans uh, chapter 6. Christ is the new representative for us, and we need to cast our lot with him because he completely kept the law perfectly. He died to pay for sin, and he rose from the grave. So if we die with him, if we're by faith united to him, represented by him, Everything that he secured for us is ours. Payment for sin, perfect righteousness credited to us, and then a resurrection at the end of time where our soul and body is reunited. So that's what we're looking at, union with Christ, and that's what Paul is, is referring to here as he talks about dying with Christ and rising with him. We're united to him by faith, and he's our representative now. Well, the resurrection guarantees present forgiveness and justification for believers. If we're united to him, then we have our sins forgiven. He says the negative in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Romans 4 says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection guarantees that, yes, Christ has paid for sin and the Father has accepted that payment. And so our sins are forgiven as we look at Christ's resurrection being the proof of that. 
The resurrection also guarantees an eternal future for believers. Verse 18, if there's no resurrection, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It means everybody who's already died that those Corinthians knew, even the Christians, they're just gone. Food for worms. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He uses the term first fruits, an agricultural term. The first fruits, the first, the first things that are harvested for the farmer. He can tell what the rest of the harvest is going to be like by looking at the first fruits. And the same is going, that's what he's saying here about Christ. He's the first one who's risen from the grave and all who are connected to him, who are united to him by faith, they will be resurrected as well. So the resurrection guarantees an eternal future for us. Now I read yesterday that the last person born in the 19th century died. I think it was an elderly lady in Italy. And I don't know how they know that. Uh, I guess there's probably somebody in some jungle somewhere who's, you know, really old. That's probably older than 117 years old. But this lady was 117, and she was celebrated as the oldest living person on earth until yesterday. She died. And that's the truth. That's the case with all of us. We're all going to die. If we put our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. And don't think of eternal life as just being in heaven, our souls there just disembodied. But there's something more. The resurrection guarantees glorified bodies for believers. Verse 51, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. As we think about eternity and course, when we die, when people die before Christ returns, their souls go to be with the Father. Their bodies are put in the ground. But when Christ returns, soul and body will be reunited, and we will live together with him in the new heaven and new earth. A real physical existence on earth with God like it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. No sin, no sorrow a blessed existence forever. Whenever someone dies, we always say, man, we, we look forward to the day when we will meet them again. Now, if we just had a bodiless existence, if our, just our souls floating around in heaven, how can we see our mother or father, in my case, both of my parents? How, how will we see the loved ones that we miss who will be in, there with us? No, we will, we will have... Uh, physical, real existence, except we'll have glorified bodies. They won't be sickness, there won't be any sickness or disease or anything like that. So when I do a funeral, sometimes I'll even say, this body, this person that you're burying today, you will once again hug that neck and hold those hands and speak and hear that person's voice again. It'll be perfect, and I don't know what that's like. It's going to be like Jesus. But that's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. It's not just that we go to heaven when we die. No, we're going to live forever in the new heavens and new earth and have a real physical existence because Christ rose from the dead. He's not just some earthy 
ghost Casper-looking spirit up in heaven. He is a human sitting at the right hand of the Father, fully God as well, but existing. And he's going to return and bring in his kingdom one day, and we will be part of that physically. Now, finally, just very quickly, third point. The resurrection validates work for Christ for the believer. Notice how he he ends this. Paul is giving this, you know, almost 60 verses of theology to us. But he's not just trying to fill our heads with knowledge. I mean, yes, he wants us to understand clearly the resurrection. But the last thing he says is is to, to live it out, live in light of it, to live in response to it. My beloved brothers, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. As we live in this world as Christians, following Christ, our exalted head, as we just sang, we meet many difficulties and trials. We struggle with sin. There's, there's many temptations to lead us away from Christ. And Paul's saying, when you think about the resurrection. It's not just about your best life now. No, it's about having an eternity where things will be right. There will be justice. Sin will be no more. We will not be in the presence of sin ever again. And so in the meantime, hang in there. Be steadfast. Don't move away from your faith. And you can work for the Lord. It's not just about what you can get. It's not just about your agenda. You can sacrifice. You can die to yourself. Look at Paul's example in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I don't know if he literally fought with beasts. He may have been thrown into the arena with beasts, or it may be just referring to his opponents. But Paul's life was one marked by trials and suffering and difficulty. He was stoned and left for dead. He was punished and imprisoned, and he went through all of that. Why? Because he was working for the Lord, and he could sacrifice. He wasn't afraid of death. Death had no hold on him because Christ is risen. The same is true for us as well. We can live without fear of death. We can pour ourselves out for the Lord. It's not in vain. We can sacrifice for our neighbor because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We can decide to to be a missionary instead of having a lucrative job because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. One day, we'll get all those blessings. We'll be in a place where the streets are gold and the gates are pearl. For now we labor and love one another and love the Lord. And the Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's referring to a passage in Isaiah that was indicative of the practice of the day when an army was coming to wipe them out and the people knew you know, the end is near. They loaded up and partied, and they were wasted by the time the enemy came here. Paul's saying, if if there's no resurrection, 
why am I suffering? Why don't I just get wasted and party on and then let the end come? He says, no, Christ is risen. And we can sacrifice all that because there's something better coming. But in the meantime, we labor for the Lord and that's not in vain. Well, my friends, I just wanted to challenge you today. Are you living in light of the resurrection of Christ? Have you considered that? Are you putting your trust and faith in Him? Is He your representative by faith? Or are you still in Adam, having a poor representative, a sinful representative? Only through Christ can we know all the blessings that He's secured in His life death, and resurrection. Only in Christ can we endure the sufferings of this present time because we know that compared to the glory that is to come, there is no comparison because of what Christ has done for us. I encourage you to cry out to the Lord today. Put your faith and trust in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that that all of us would see in our mind's eye Christ and his work for us. A real human being who came to earth in obedience to the Father's plan and and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead. And may, Lord, we place our faith squarely upon him, not on our own works, not in our own merit, but firmly upon Jesus Christ. And, Lord, May we be his disciples and serve you and serve one another and promote the kingdom of God with our gifts because we know our labor for you is not in vain. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.